Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes. Today we step into the book of Ecclesiastes, and as we always do when we step into a new book, uh, we do so with a book sermon. On the back table, there is an outline. Uh, I give you an outline for every book that we preach through. They are online as well, most of them. I don't have Ecclesiastes up yet, but I give you an outline for every book that I've preached through. It's an outline that I've created, kind of the way I see it. Those outlines are not set in stone. They're not infallible or anything of the sort. But if you would like an outline for the book of Ecclesiastes, um, I would encourage you to go get one. You can grab one now. You can get one at the end of the service. And you can keep it in your Bible as we're walking through the book and kind of see how we're tracing these concepts through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the book sermon is something that I've really come to love in uh, our, our preaching through series because it helps us see the big picture. It gives us insight into the overall purpose, the scope of the book, so that as we dig deeply, because we do try to dig deeply here, we don't lose the forest for the trees. We start the series by understanding what's going on, where he's going. See, these are our books, right? They are... Uh, whether it's an epistle, whether it's a, a poetry book, whether it's a history, it's meant to give us an overall, an overarching idea. It's meant to send us in a particular direction. And it's good that we see that particular direction as uh, at the beginning of the book so that we can know where we're going and we don't get too so bogged down in where we are that we forget what's happening as a whole. The Bible is a book of context. It is 66 books written over thousands of years, but it contains a single cohesive message compiled by the true and living God and handed to man as a means of communicating to him. And as such, context is king. The Bible is not a random compilation of thoughts and ideas that have the same topic. The Bible is a single book, a single message, a cohesive whole. However, each individual book does touch on many topics meant to supply the needs of every man in every situation that he might find himself in. And among these books, Ecclesiastes is somewhat unique. It speaks of the reality that man lives in a material world, but also operates on a spiritual plane, or is at least designed to. It's a book that addresses the perceived tension between life and godliness. It gives us lessons from a man who had every earthly pleasure, every opportunity at his disposal, and teaches us how to reconcile the innate craving that men have to, for a life well lived, for enjoyment, with man's responsibility to creator God and an understanding that everything that we do will be judged one day. And this tension is found oftentimes more so perhaps in conservative Christian circles than others. The tension between entertainment and obedience. The tension between amusement and obedience. There's, there's a tension there where we say, are we doing right? Is this time actually being redeemed? Are we, are we wasting time? And then if we get to the point where we say, well, everything is a waste of time, well, then life becomes a drudgery, right? It's just, there's no fun in it. Because we're denying ourselves everything. 
That's the tension of this book. How, how, how do we reconcile that desire, that innate desire within us to live and to live well and to live a full life with the recognition that what we do counts for eternity? The reason this matters, perhaps in this age more than ever, is because of that tension. We live in an age of historic prosperity, perhaps unlike man has ever seen. Poverty is at historic lows as far as the records are concerned. In the United States, the lowest 10% of our population, the quality of life for that lowest 10% is nearly as good as the highest 10% average among the world. We live in an age of information where the opportunity to learn new things is limited only by the amount of time and energy that you have to absorb. We can pursue knowledge like no other generation has pursued knowledge. We can pursue things like no other generation has pursued things. Access to pleasures in life have never been more prevalent to people at all ends of the economic and cultural spectrum than today. But for all of this, have you noticed that people aren't very happy? Have you noticed that people aren't very happy? The natural part of man says that We've got all those things that would make us happy. The natural part of man says if man could just be brought out of his poverty, if he could just be educated, then he could find happiness. But you know, some of the most educated people in the world are the meanest, unhappiest people. Some of the richest people in the world are the unhappiest, most unfulfilled people. And this is what Ecclesiastes is exploring. What's missing? In that innate human desire for for things and for a life well lived and for the comforts, thinking that that will satisfy what's missing. In this book, one of the wealthiest, wisest, most capable, most honorable, most famous men in all of history puts life to the test. And he has the means to do it. He can test every angle of life to ascertain what truly constitutes lasting satisfaction. Not just temporal happiness, but lasting satisfaction. And what he will find that is that while life is good, and it's meant by God to be enjoyed, the pleasures of this life can only truly be satisfying when they are understood as gifts from God and when they are submitted to His way. Ecclesiastes is an oft misunderstood book because Solomon writes it from the perspective of a man whom he describes as being under the sun. He writes it from a man's perspective. And so it seems from the writing of it to be a fatalistic book. As a matter of fact, Ecclesiastes was the favorite book of philosophers, of of the godless atheist philosophers of years gone by. They love to go to Ecclesiastes and talk about how there's nothing new under the sun and how everything is vanity because their worldview is emptiness. that, that, that nothing matters. And Solomon will come to that conclusion, but only from the perspective of a man looking under the sun. A man who sees his entire world as wrapped up in this world. But then when Solomon broadens his perspective and brings God into it, it changes everything. So it's going to be a little bit of a different book. Kind of like when we preach through Job. You know, Job, there's a lot of arguments going back and forth, but then at the end of the book, we find out that many of these arguments that we preached through were actually invalid arguments. It's kind of that way with Ecclesiastes. A lot of the book is actually telling us the invalid thinking of man or the natural thinking of man outside of God. 
And then it's bringing us from time to time back to God to remind us that He's there and that He really does. Don't, don't, don't miss this. This is going to be a theme throughout. He really does want you to enjoy what life has to offer. He really does. He wants you to enjoy life. It's interesting. Ecclesiastes is one of five books in the Jewish uh, orthodoxy that's called the Megaloth. It's, they are, the Megaloth is, is read on various feast days and there's a different book read during each of the feasts. Ecclesiastes is read during the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Lamentations would be read on the ninth of Ab, which was the, um, the uh, atonement, Day of Atonement. Esther is read during the Feast of Purim. Song of Solomon is read during the Feast of the Passover. And Ruth is read on the Feast of Pentecost. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Ecclesiastes is read. And I'll let you do the digging on that on yourself if you'd like. I'm not going to dig into it today. We don't have enough time. Or I might come back to it at the end of our series and talk about the link in the Jewish mind between tabernacles and this book, the book of Ecclesiastes. But first, uh, as we dig into this book, and this is an introductory message, I'd like to give you a little bit of background into the man who wrote it. Solomon, we believe, wrote the book. King Solomon. Uh, it's a, con- a pr- pretty... Large consensus, at least among conservative Christian scholars, that he was the writer. He was the son of King David, the first living son of his marriage with Bathsheba. Recall, uh, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, she and David had a son together in adultery. That son died. And then Solomon was born as the, the first living son out of that relationship between David and Bathsheba. Uh, Solomon was the third king in Israel's history over the united nation of Israel. Uh, he followed, of course, first Saul, then David. Solomon was the third king in this united nation of Israel. His life, as you might recall, if you've read about it, is somewhat of a tragedy of sorts. He began his reign over Israel in obedience to God. Though it was not perfect obedience. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was a great high place, a thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer up. Uh, excuse me, offer upon the altar. Solomon loved God. Solomon served God. But he made a habit of sacrificing burnt offerings at the high places rather than at the tabernacle in Jerusalem. What the Bible calls a high place, it was in many ways exactly that. A high place was a raised plateau. It would have been a flat piece of land raised above the rest of the land around it. And it served as a focal point for sacrifices unto a God. Now, the flat top would be ideal for an altar. You have the flat top so that you can put an altar on it, so that you can then put animals on it. It was raised up so that people could stand below it, and it could go back for, for a distance of people standing around while, while the, the sacrifice is being made, and they could all see what's going on. So they were elevated in the same way that the pulpit here is elevated so that the people in the back can hopefully see over the perhaps tall people in front of them. You can see, even though you're flat, I'm elevated and that helps you to see. It's the same with the high place. The high place would be erected so that everybody could see the altar and see the sacrifice being made. 
In this case, it seems a great high place had been established in Gibeon. Now recall, Gibeon was the hometown of Saul. It was also the place where uh, several of the kings were taken to be anointed by the Lord and brought into um, their, their position as king. And it seems as though uh, that high place had been established and it was now a regular place of worship unto the Lord. All throughout the history of Israel, men made sacrifices unto the Lord at altars built throughout the land. Now, this was primarily for convenience. And the Lord had no problem with altars being erected. uh, But what he did not want is burnt offerings being made Upon those altars. Those were not allowed to be done anywhere but in the temple or the tabernacle. And we read this instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. The Bible says, But when ye go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about, so that ye dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maidservants and the Levite that is within your gates. For as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you, take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. So God told them, do not offer burnt offerings anywhere but the place where I will choose. And that place would be wherever uh, the Lord's tabernacle was. And then once the temple was built, of course, that place would be without question, Jerusalem. But Solomon went to Instead of sacrificing in Jerusalem, he went to Gibeon. And he sacrificed there unto the Lord. And this is what the Bible is saying when it says that his heart was not perfect before the Lord. Because he sacrificed in the high places. He did burnt offerings in the high places. However, God does not hold this entirely against him. God does not forsake him or, or cut him off because of this. As a matter of fact, in Gibeon, while Solomon was sacrificing in the high place... We continue in 1 Kings 3 to read this. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth, and in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in, and thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a a people? And the speech pleased the Lord. 
that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. Interesting, right? He had just sacrificed in the high place in Gibeon. He sees this dream and uh, he has this dream. And in this dream, the Lord says, I'll give you wisdom and I'll give you all that stuff you didn't ask for because I'm so glad you didn't ask for it. You didn't pursue man's ambition in your request. And then what does Solomon do? Well, he goes to Jerusalem before the ark of the Lord in the tabernacle to then do burnt offerings. It seems as though he, he realized at that point, I need to do things a little bit differently here. So Solomon asks for wisdom. God says, I will give you wisdom unlike any before thee or any after thee. And I will make you honorable and I will make you wealthy. And I will prolong your days if you will, if you will trust in me, if you will serve me as, as your father did. So he was established from early on ready to be immensely successful from a material perspective. Unfortunately, these material blessings caused Solomon to lose perspective on what truly mattered. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, God mentioned through Moses three specific things, three commands to guide future kings in Israel. There was no king in Deuteronomy. But God says, when there will be a king in Israel, there are three specific things I command of him. Verses 15 to 17, the Bible says, Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, he shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Those were the three expectations. Don't multiply horses and don't send your people down to Egypt to get horses. Two, don't multiply wives. That will turn your heart away from the Lord. Three, don't multiply silver and gold. Kings of Israel, don't do those three things. So we were in 1 Kings 3 before. We fast forward to 1 Kings 10 and we read this. And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt. And linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and in horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria, did they bring them out by their means. So we've already read that Solomon in his wealth and in his prosperity multiplied silver as the stones of the street and brought horses out of Egypt. Two of the things 
God explicitly said, king of Israel should not do. We continue in 1 Kings 11 and we read this. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, who was his first wife, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come into you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. It's a thousand women in his harem. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of, his, of David his father. So it was that a large portion of Solomon's days were spent in idolatry and in the pursuit of selfish ends. He had wives. His wives wanted to pursue their own gods. He pursued those gods with them. His wives turned away his heart from serving the Lord. He multiplied silver. God said, don't do that. He multiplied horses from Egypt. God said, don't do that. He multiplied wives. God said, don't do that. And in this time of rebellion, that is the perspective from which Solomon teaches the lessons of Ecclesiastes. That being said, the book of Ecclesiastes was most likely not written while Solomon was in this rebellion. It was most likely written at the end of his days when he returned to the Lord and he looked back upon his life and he realized what he had done and he saw how he pursued everything and anything for pleasure except doing it God's way. And now he says, I want other generations to learn the lesson without having to make the mistake. So I am going to write down what God taught me and I'm going to write it down for the sake of others. And that's the foundation of this book. He tried it all. He tried wealth. He tried building projects. He tried travel. He tried women. He tried everything to be happy. And he's going to tell us how it turned out. Solomon was the greatest king in the world. And in his wealth and his power, he sought every pleasure life had to offer, looking for something very specific. He was looking for lasting satisfaction. He, he traveled the world. He built great monuments. He had wives. He pursued great learning. He pursued the mental aspect. All in that quest for true, lasting satisfaction. And the journey that he takes is the content of Ecclesiastes, leading to a grand conclusion but really the book can be divided up into four subsections. And those subsections are these. Chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 to 5, chapters 6 through 8, verse 15, and then, cha and then chapter 8, verse 16, to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 14. And as we consider this division, we'll walk through it together. Each of these sections, Solomon is contemplating elements of living under the sun of living man from man's perspective. And as he does so, he's trying to reconcile it with his knowledge of the God who created him. And he's torn because he wants that pleasure in life and he sees such pleasure in life. But he pursues that pleasure and as he pursued it, no matter what area, whether it was wealth, whether it was women, whether it was knowledge, whether it was building, he found it in and of itself to be empty. The, book, the word that's used throughout the book is Vanity, lasting, uh, lacking a lasting satisfaction. See, 
in Solomon's years of rebellion, it seems as though he viewed the commands of the Lord as a hindrance to his happiness. That God was somehow standing in the way of what would actually give him pleasure. Solomon wanted everything that life had to offer, and he saw God as in the way. Why, Solomon thought, should a man be forced to live out his life in lacking happiness, enduring the burdens that God has placed on him, only then to stand before God in judgment? So he pursued pleasure at the expense of God's commands. He pursued that wealth and the honor and the power and the women and the knowledge. And at the end, he just found it last, lacking satisfaction. And this greatly troubled him and led him into some very dark times until he came to realize that to fear God is to live and to live more abundantly. That's when Jesus said, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. That's the point. That to fear God is to truly live an abundant life. The essence of a life of enjoyment is not to pursue life's pleasures at the expense of God, His commandments and His will, but rather to pursue life's pleasures within the context of God's will, within the context of God's of God's will uh, and God's word and God's design. In other words, Solomon realized two important things. First, life is meant to be enjoyed. Second, life is destined to be judged. And he wants to help us reconcile the two. It's the responsibility of mankind to pursue that fullness of that joy while simultaneously positioning himself for the day when he will be judged by a holy God. If men could only know God, Solomon concludes, then man would receive the ability to truly take what has been given to him, whether that's little or much, whether that's um, one avenue, knowledge, or another avenue, wealth. If man truly knew God, then he would have the ability to truly enjoy those blessings the way God has designed them to be enjoyed. And in doing so, he will be left with lasting fulfillment rather than emptiness. And so the first three sections that you see there uh, come to a qualified conclusion. Each one brings us to a, a, a qualified conclusion which aids the reader in understanding the final conclusion at the end of the book. And let's just summarize the book briefly. As the book begins, uh, the first section, Solomon contemplates life. He tells us of his own restlessness. He gives us the foundation for why he went off and tried to test every pleasure of life. He says in verses 12 and 13 that he was king, that he gave his heart to seek wisdom concerning all things, both good and bad. Notice he says there, um, um, all things that are done under, under heaven, uh, the good and the bad. He tried it all, everything under the sun, everything that this life has to afford to see what would bring satisfaction. And he said, and, and um, he continues, he says, He gave himself to know wisdom, madness, and folly. Wisdom, madness, and folly. The good, the crazy, and the bad. He tried it all. What brings satisfaction? The world tells you that if you just go this one route, that's where satisfaction is. That's what advertisements bombard you with all the time, right? Get the new phone, you'll be satisfied. Our beer, you'll be satisfied. 
This way of living, you'll be satisfied. This government structure, you'll be satisfied. Man is constantly looking for that. Solomon says, I tried it all. I tried wisdom, I tried madness, I tried folly. And what he found is that everything just was more, brought more sorrow. And the more he learned, the more sorrowful he became. But he was determined to test life for what it could offer. In chapter 2, he describes his building projects. He describes his gardens. He describes his love for wealth. His desire to be enriched culturally. To pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake. To pursue learning just for the sake of learning. All those things that man just loves to do. He kept nothing back from his desires. He pursued anything and everything that his heart wanted. All seeking to prove that the good things in life are sufficient to cause one to be happy and fulfilled. That if you pursue, if you have enough good things, then when you look back at the end of your life, you'll look back and say, it was good. I was fulfilled. Only to find that it was empty. He says in verse 11, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought. Chapter 2, verse 11. And on, on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. And that brings us to the first of these conclusions. In chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Solomon says, There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul to enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto, more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon says that life is a gift from God, given to God. It's meant to be lived. It's meant to be loved. But the good things of this life are only truly understood and appreciated when we recognize them to be gifts from God. That a man left to himself extracts nothing lasting from the pleasures of this life. No lasting satisfaction. But the pleasures of life, when received with thanksgiving as from the hand of God, truly position men to joy in them. Then he continues into section 2, chapters 3 through 5. Solomon contemplates life from the perspective of God, but under the sun. Is God really in control? Or is life just one big human mess? Solomon contemplates God's method. His design, recognizing the cyclical nature of everything. To everything there is a season. To every purpose. Whatsoever God doeth, He doeth it forever. Nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. All of these ideas. He understands that God operates above life and that men should fear Him. But then he thinks about all the problems. When, when he considers this idea that God is in control, he says, well, God, what about all these problems? In chapters 3 and 4, what about injustice? What about death? What about the oppression of the rich against the poor? Of the strong against the weak? What about ambition? Men are naturally ambitious and their ambition leads them to lose integrity. Their ambition leads them to cheat and to steal and to step on others to get where they want to go. What about loneliness? What about corruption? All of these things are in the world and yet God is in control. Whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. 
How can a God in control who has designed life to be loved and enjoyed allow such things? If God has truly given us this life to enjoy, then where does all this stuff fit in? Is it a contradiction that God would allow these into His design? Is it a problem that God would infuse into life meant to be enjoyed things that only lead to suffering? Then he wonders in chapter 5 about religion. Is the answer some religious code? Keep thy foot, verse 1, when thou goest to the house of God and be ready to hear, more ready to hear than to give sacrifice to fools. All throughout the book, Solomon's going to be quoting Proverbs of the day. Whether from the Bible, most not from the Bible, most from the other cultures of the day. A proverb here, a saying there. Is religion enough? Is the solution to pleasure in life simply throwing ourselves into a constant effort to pacify an angry God? If I give enough to God, or if I do enough pious things, or if I have enough religion in my life, is that what's going to bring lasting contentment? And how is it, Solomon then asks, that a man with great wealth and abundance finds no peace in his spirit enough to sleep, but the man of labor, who may not have eaten even enough food that day to be satisfied, finds peace enough to sleep. Perhaps Solomon remembers the nights where he was pacing, unsatisfied in his house, saying, I have all this wealth, everyone at my disposal, I have a thousand wives and concubines, I have everything I could want, and yet I can't sleep, I have no peace. But he looks out his window at the men that he had inscribed to be his slaves, and they hardly even ate that day, they got bread and water, and they've been building his building projects, and he says, and they're all sleeping peaceably. They're sleeping and I'm not. There's something wrong here. I'm the wealthy man. I'm the man that's got it all. Why can they sleep peaceably and I have no peace? These are the questions Solomon sought to answer. And then he comes to a second qualified conclusion in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. He says, Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him. For it is his portion, every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. For a man to enjoy with contentment, recognizing God has blessed him and given him gifts, for a man to enjoy the state in which he finds himself is right. To enjoy it. To love it. To find contentment. Only God can give contentment. And as a man lives out his days in whatever situation God has given to him, he can find contentment. But you cannot take that contentment by force. Money can't buy it. Position can't demand it. That contentment can only be received as one recognizes the things in life as gifts from God. In section 3, Solomon identifies this life of enjoyment, the life that God has given, the better way, if I may call it that. Chapter 6 describes a long life of wealth, but without enjoyment and contentment. He contemplates a man that has all this wealth, but no children, and so no one to give his money to. He contemplates the man who has a hundred children, and yet he, he's not happy with his wealth, and then his kids just take it anyway. And so the preacher concludes that wealth cannot buy happiness. But he says there's a better way, and he considers this better way in chapter 7. 
He says first in verse 1, a good name is better than possessions. Then he says the gravity of a carefully considered end is better than an unconsidered merriment. Then he talks about rebuke from a wise man being better than being the son of a fool. Then he, in other words, better to have a father that disciplines you than not. Then he says oppression is better than having profane gifts. Then he says the end is better than the beginning. Then the patient in spirit are better than the proud in spirit. That wisdom is better than wealth. And he contemplates this better way. Within this better way, however, Solomon warns of two dangers. And he continues that in chapter 7. He says there's two dangers to this better way. First is self-righteousness. Second is an unchaste woman. He says those are two great dangers to the better way. Each of which Solomon says will strip life of its joy. And this brings us to his third conclusion in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 8. He says, There is vanity which is done under the earth, upon the earth, and there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said also that this is vanity. Then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry. For that shall abide with him of, the, of his labor all the days of his life which God hath given him under the sun. He states here that there is a good way and an evil way. That from a material perspective under the sun, it cannot be said that good things always happen to good people and bad things always happen to bad people. In fact, quite often, you see good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. But the privilege of man is to approach his days as a gift from God, regardless of circumstances, and so to enjoy the life that has been given to him, to seek the way of joy found in those better things, and to leave those injustices of life to God. And that brings us to our final section. Wherein we learn that wisdom is rooted not in the things of this life, but in the things of the life to come. Not in the material, but in the spiritual. Solomon speaks of hope and joy rooted in what we can know in spite of what we cannot know. Solomon spends the majority of the section speaking about wisdom. Wisdom's power. Wisdom's purity. Wisdom's humility. Wisdom's patience, wisdom's words, wisdom's generosity, wisdom's initiative. These things that are a life of wisdom that will bring the better way, the lasting fulfillment. And he contemplates his own life. He tried everything. He applied himself to every pleasure of life, whether good or evil. And his lesson came down to two ideas. Then bringing those two ideas into one overriding conclusion. Idea number one, in chapter 11, verse 9... Rejoice in your days. Rejoice in the days that the Lord has given you. He says in verse 9 of chapter 11, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Enjoy life, but enjoy it within the context of knowing what God expects of you. And then he goes on in chapter 12, verse 1, to say, Secondly, remember your Creator. Verse 1, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, 
nor the years draw nigh when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. There's coming a day where each day is going to be hard. Where you're going to get up, and this is what Solomon will say. He'll continue to say, you're going to get achy, and you're going to get sore, and your eyes aren't going to work real well, and your feet aren't going to work real well, and your hands aren't going to work real well, and you don't have time to enjoy life anymore because you're too busy trying to stay alive. So enjoy it, young people. Enjoy it. Enjoy it while you're strong. Enjoy it while you're healthy. But remember that God will judge it. And enjoy it in that context. Love life, Solomon says, but don't forget to love God. And that brings us to his conclusion. The grand conclusion at the end of the book. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Plenty of chapters telling you, love life, it's a gift from God. But never forget to fear God while you're loving life. Because God will bring every work into judgment. The idea of Ecclesiastes is this. God created life and He gave it to you to enjoy. Food tastes good. That's not an accident. God wants you to enjoy food. Family is a wonderful thing. There's comfort and there's rest there. That's not an accident. God gave you a family to find that place of peace and of rest. Sound sleep, that's a blessing from the Lord. Rest and joy, these are blessings from the Lord. But in all these things, we must remember that the only true joy found in anything in this life is found in the context of the fear of God. And this fear is accomplished when we enjoy life within the scope of understanding that what we do in this life echoes into eternity. That God will bring every work into judgment. No matter whether people see it or not, no matter whether you have consequences on this earth or not, God sees, God knows. So enjoy life, but enjoy it properly, with purity. When we are living in the fear of God, then we can know that the life we are enjoying is not a life that we have to live today but pay for tomorrow. It's a life that we can live today with the approval of the one who will judge our tomorrow. And that's when you can enjoy it. You can truly enjoy life when you know that you're not going to have to answer for, negatively answer for it in eternity. You can do things that are enjoyable but virtuous. So that on the day of judgment, you don't have to say, yep, I enjoyed it then and now I pay for it. As we step into Ecclesiastes over the next several months, this will be our goal as well. To understand how to enjoy life while still pleasing God. To understand that life is meant to be enjoyed, but can only truly be enjoyed when you see it as a gift from God and thus live as if it's a gift from God. There's nothing the world can offer you that can compare to a life lived this way. There's no temporal enjoyment that is worth more than the fulfillment of the life that God has given to you to enjoy. And if you find the fear of God and live within the bounds of that fear, your life will have lasting fulfillment. You will look upon it at the end of your days and you will have found it to be satisfying. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's what we want. 
That's what Solomon is here to teach us. He says, I made the mistakes so you don't have to. And so the question for us is, are we living this way today? Does your, do, do your days bring you last, the lasting satisfaction of knowing you're doing what God is, wants you to do? You are enjoying life. You're not rejecting everything that life has to offer. Are you enjoying life? But are you enjoying it in the context of God? His way. His, his commands. His will. That's what we're going to explore. If you're not enjoying life, why not? Let's spend this week thinking about that. Maybe you already know why. Maybe it's time to just pinpoint that and do what you need to do. Maybe it's already apparent the change that needs to be made. Maybe not. Maybe over the course of the next several months, as we preach on everything that Solomon's going to go through, the Lord will pinpoint it. Are you ready? Do you already see that there's something missing? You're in Christ, but there's something missing. There's no lasting fulfillment. The days are empty. The things are empty. Or you do them without the joy because you know that they're not right before the Lord. This book is going to help us to make these choices, to change these perspectives so that we can live in such a way that we are both loving all that God has given to us in this life and fearing God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have given us life to be loved. Thank you that we, when you have called us out of this world, uh, from the spiritual perspective, the world being defined as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, you did not call us out of enjoyment. Thank you that life can be well lived. Thank you that we can love this life, that we can enjoy this life, that we have not been called to be boring or to be dismal or to reject everything that life has to offer. We are simply called to love life in the context of loving you. Help us to do that. Help us to see that. I pray for God's people today in this summary message that if even now they, the, the Holy Spirit has pinpointed something in their life that is out of balance, uh, whether loving life at the expense of obeying God or whether uh, rejecting life in the name of God, that you would help us to see that you have called us to live a life of abundant joy to love the things that you have given to us. May we do that. May you guide us into that. We pray for God's people this week that each of us would be filled with an overwhelming determination to find that place of lasting satisfaction in life through you. Even in the midst of our trials and tribulations and troubles. May we be satisfied. For this is the gift of God to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.